Today on episode 290 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, I turn the tables on Bonnie to interview her. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Dave Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest is no stranger to you. She is normally the host of this podcast. She is also a business professor and dean of teaching and learning at her institution, and she is the author of the book, The Productive Online and Offline Professor. And I'm turning the tables on her today so we can discover more about her wisdom from this new book. Hello. Hi, Dave. I was about, I'm so used to being on your podcast and being your guest and saying, thanks for having me here. But actually, I think that's not how this one worked out. <laughs> yeah, it's a little different workflow, but uh, this is so exciting. You've been working on this for so long and now we're here almost, depending on when this airs. <laughs> yeah, depends um, when you're listening. It's either... It's either very close or already out or Or it's maybe, been out for years and we're so glad you found the show. Yeah, that's also a possibility from picking this up later. So we have a whole bunch we can discuss around it. First of all, big picture, what's driven the interest in productivity for you? Because this didn't start with this book. We've talked about that all along here on this podcast since it began. So I promise this relates. Lee Scalarup Bissop, who's been on the show before and has a whole blogging life and scholarship of her own had mentioned in recent months that The Far Side was coming back. This is a comic. I, I mentioned it on another recent episode. Did you grow up with The Far Side? Thing? I did. So I you, remember you know the, reading The Far Side when I was a kid. I think as of this date, as of our recording, he had come out with at least one or two or three new comics. It's, I think he's going to do it on a weekly basis. Anyway, so I have actually the Far Side calendar from me being in college, and I have an inside look at how I managed my time. And I didn't manage things like when classes were held, that kind of thing, because my weeks pretty much looked the same. I did work about, just depending on the year, but about 30 hours a week, but it was right across the street from our school. And it just integrated really well with my life. You know, it wasn't a stressful thing to work that many hours. And it was at a school. It was actually at a continuing high school. That's like for students who were having a little trouble sometimes with the law or other kinds of trouble <laughs> that, that required a different type of a school environment. And at any rate, yeah, but I would put down things like when papers were due. And it just, it's just such a simple life to go back and look at. But I did always want to fulfill my commitments. I took that very seriously. I was always the kind of person who'd show up early to work and, you know, was very responsible. So I have had this idea of us all having a finite amount of time and thinking about how I was going to spend it. But certainly back in my college days, things looked very much the same on a week by week basis, not too much difference. And then same thing in the summers too. I was a camp counselor and eventually a camp director. And those weeks pretty much looked the same. And our calendar was just what site we were going to be visiting that day. Were we going to the zoo or what have you? Then things changed dramatically once I started getting into working in a business context. We were a global organization. We were in 40 different countries. So a lot of travel, a lot of time zone differences. 
and a lot of different roles that I would play and a lot of expectations people had for me too. These were, I was supporting people as they were opening up and running and growing their businesses and had a team of support people that would go out and visit them. So it wasn't just my time, but others people's time that I was managing and their projects too. And then now we get to our lives today, Dave, you and I, I keep calling them young children. And I think at one point do not call them young children anymore. They're five Uh, and seven. I don't don't know when you stop doing that. But they certainly don't drive yet. I mean, I think no. they'd like to, but they don't. They would. They would. <laughs> and so we've got children to navigate. Uh, I am, as you mentioned, I'm a dean of teaching and learning. So that means that reporting to me are our student success initiatives, like a tutoring center, writing center, and supplemental instruction. I've got the library that that I work with as well. And then our Institute for Faculty Development. And then I do teach still too. <laughs> so there's that, which brings you know forth a lot of opportunities for connections with students, but a lot more complexity. You just wrapped up a class on personal leadership and productivity. What reflections are coming up for you in that most recent interactions? There was part of it where I feel like, you know, once you really get to teach a class, I think this might have been my fifth time doing it. I just loved that I have the advantage of knowing what didn't work in the past. And a lot of times it was kind of trying to rush through things, although I certainly rushed through things this time too. I I really, but I I could slow myself down a little bit. I'll give you an example. I taught them something called Inbox Zero which of course does relate to productivity. If you want to think about how to manage your email, your email does not make a great task manager. In fact, it's a pretty terrible one. So we talked about that and I got, I had an assignment for them. They all had to go into their email and clear it out, which meant putting it in an archive, which just freaked them out. It freaks out by the way, anyone that you have to do this, like I have 7,000 emails. What if I need to get back to one of those people? We're not doing anything except just moving it to another, it's still, you just click on either the archive folder, or if you'd like to call it stuff, I'm sure I'm going to get back to someday. If that makes you feel better, create a folder called stuff. I'm sure I'm going to get back to someday, but it really, really freaked them out. And what I really didn't realize was I didn't say, and then what, once you've done that, like, what do you do next? Like, how do you manage that as it comes in? So then a, a couple weeks after that, I actually brought in some of my own emails and I, I had them like, what would you do if this was your email and, and you saw this? Like, what, what kinds of ways are you going to integrate it with the different things that I taught you? It was really cool. But anyway, part of what wasn't a surprise, because I've taught it so many times and because college students, a lot of time they're doing things last minute. They're just reacting to what other people think they should do. So I've got this syllabus, the dates are built. In. I don't get to decide when that's due. And a lot of times they're deciding through oftentimes necessity to do things at the last minute. And Dave, you have a great story that I need to actually (laughs) capture, not necessarily at this very moment, but I want to capture it for my students. The story about when you were in college and you waited so long on working on that paper. Would you just share that that briefly, give us some background on that? Do you remember the the class you were taking? I do. It was a class on African history. It was a requirement in our institution to take a non-Western course, which was great. It should be a requirement of every institution. And there was a term paper we were supposed to have been working on the entire semester. And of course, I decided I would start 7 p.m. the night before the paper was due in December, whenever the last week of the class was. And so I went to the library at 7, spent four hours doing finding all the books and the articles, went back to wherever I was living at the time and spent the next three or four hours reading and writing and crafting the paper. And I think I finished it at like 5 a.m. And then the class was at 8 or 9 a.m. 
And so anytime I've told the story, I ask like, what do you think happened? How do you think I did on this paper? And I thought turning it in, I'm like, oh, I'm going to get a C on this. It's going to be awful. And sure enough, I get the paper back and I got an A. And I realized like, wow, I could, I sort of got rewarded for waiting until the last minute. But I also realized then like the amount of stress that I had had been leading up to that entire time. For me, like even though I got rewarded with a good result, it wasn't worth it. And that was the point that I actually started changing a lot of my behavior just on how I planned and did things a little bit more proactively. It wasn't the ending point, but it was definitely the starting point for me being better at my time management. When I tell stories like this, I really try not to make this about our students. I see faculty members do this kind of thing all the time. And as you describe, Dave, that lesson that you draw from that experience of all the times that you thought about I should be working on that paper. I really should be working on that paper. I should be working on the paper. The mental energy and stress that it took, this is not restricted to students. And, I, and that we have to be very careful about that. The other real big reflection that I have from this most recent time I taught these topics in a class is just my own continuing not being able to instinctively understand the context that my students are working in. So we read two books for the class. We read the book Seven Habits for Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, and we read the book Getting Things Done by David Allen. And David Allen's kind of, I do, I really love his book. And by the way, if you have not read the 2015 edition, that's the one. He just, he made it much, much better, much more accessible, easier to follow what that system looks like. But when it, he talks about like label makers, my students are not going to go by label makers that much. I knew like manila folders are not as big of a part of our students' lives as they were our parents' lives. But the ways in which their lives are affected by family situations and by a different socioeconomic status than, that, than I live in just continue to echo. So one of the assignments that they had was they had to show sort of a before and after look at their workspace. And one of the things that David Allen is careful about saying, and I was careful about emphasizing is our workspace may not be like literally a desk. A workspace can be a coffee shop. A workspace can be a library. And, and that can mean that our workspace gets carried around with us in our backpacks and what have you. But just the stories that the students would tell of, well, grandma and grandpa moved in because grandpa's sick now. He has cancer. Or there was another one, you know, someone's got Alzheimer's. So the family I have to make sure I'm there certain hours, take care of grandma. And I'm just like, and, and then one of the people, like actually two of the people lost their desks. Like they used to have a workspace they could work at in a quieter space where they lived. And then that family members, like, I just like, oh my gosh. So that was, I, I guess one of the things I think about in terms of productivity is we really have to make these systems work for us. And we all live in such different contexts. And I don't ever want to lose sight of some of the privilege that I have. Each you and you and I both have a home office, like not shared one, but like we have separate home offices. And most people that would be in circumstances wouldn't have that. So like I try to I try to really emphasize that you gotta find something that works for you. Speaking of that, what advice do you have when someone comes to you? and says, hey, I'm working on being more productive. What's the starting point? A big mental shift is, I, I was talking about that chaos. A big mental shift is we got to back away for that chaos. We have to carve out times in our lives where we reflect, where we plan. And part of that reflecting too, and part of that planning is looking backward. 
So a regular practice for me is to look at this past week's calendar. Are there any what are called open loops? Like, did I go to a meeting and I should have caught it, but I'm just now realizing that I need to follow up with that person because something's not going to move forward if I don't. Those kinds of opportunities to sit back and not do, 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 chaos, chaos, respond, 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 allow people, allow us to dream. They allow us to grieve. They allow us to regroup. You know, how are we going to handle this now going forward? You and I sit down every week, Dave, and we talk about our calendars. And that, boy, the number of things we have solved by looking at our calendars together, including not having our children be picked up because somehow it got left off the calendar. I mean, you know, that's, that's a really good opportunity for us to stop doing, doing, doing and just sit together and take some steps back and look forward. And we also talk about finances too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a big thing is to stop that. And then in terms of the open loops, I just wanted to mention something. I, I tend to think of open loops as bad open loops bad. You got to squash that loop, Dave. You got to squash it just like a bug. And so I was reading an article and if I can find it, candidly, I don't think I'm going to find it, but I'll try. If I can find it, there was an article about, yes, open loops, you want to close them when it comes to productivity. But when it comes to creativity, you actually want to leave space and room for those open loops. And I realized that I did that, like I'm doing more speaking. And if I've got a keynote coming up, I have a place. In my case, it's an Evernote. But I have a place where if I just have an idea, it's my open loop. And there's a place, there's a wonderful blank slate for me to go and just capture those ideas as I'm having them. And in fact, I speaking of privilege, I have an Apple Watch. So it even has drafts on there. I can, if I'm driving or if I'm walking around, I can just tap on it and it immediately starts recording. And I can have that place for open loops for creativity and just just allowing those ideas to really bloom and blossom. And I thought that was really wonderful because again, I tend to just think of open loops as gotta gotta close it, gotta, gotta get that follow-up or 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 take care of that thing, you know, get that thing done so that the loop is all closed and you can check the box. One of the things I'm hearing you say is like creating systems and space to do that and being intentional about that. Because one of the things that I know I still fall in this trap once in a while, and that story from me writing that paper 20 years ago is the kinds of people who listen to this show are pretty smart people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They've figured out the system. They've gotten really good at thinking on their feet. And you and I both know a whole bunch of people in higher ed who kind of react to things all day long, and they're pretty good at handling stuff as it's coming at them because they're really smart, talented people, and they're stressed out a lot. Yes. Because they're so smart. They're so good at handling things as it comes at them that the necessity of creating the space hasn't emerged. And if you can proactively create the space before it hits the breaking point, create the space and the systems and the reflection time that you just talked about and allowing for those open loops, it opens up the doors to not only do so much more, but to enjoy the journey so much more along the way. I was thinking about as of this recording, I, I we've had quite the adventures going on in my work. <laughs> We're trying to advocate for a change and it's a complex change. It involves so many different people, so many different moving parts and pieces. So my last couple of days have felt pretty chaotic. Plus we had our kids had some things at school that were going on that we got to go see, but that kind of was a different schedule for us, you know, the, just all kinds of different things. But we have the margin, both in terms of time but also in terms of relationships. Because as I was trying to navigate this complex change at work, 
I'm trying to influence. I'm trying to push this beast down the road. And it's so difficult. But I had a chance. One of the big things I was able to move forward, it's someone that I've had a relationship with for like 13 years. And we've built up so much trust that this doesn't have to be like the first time we've had a hard conversation together. We trust each other and we know that we want what's best for our students. We want what's best for our institution. So however we might see this situation differently, we have enough of what Stephen Covey calls the emotional bank account that I didn't have to like go in and have a relationship where there's not trust, have a relationship where there's not that sense that we respect each other and we want what's best. I mean, it's just, it really helps. So margin not just in terms of time, but margin in terms of relationships, because those relationships, if the only time we're approaching people is in that chaos mode where we're inevitably asking them for something or we've let them down, they asked us for something and we're late or we didn't get it to them. That's no way to live. I really don't think that's any way to live. We can live in that in some seasons of our life, but that just is not going to be a great way to live. And I, I say the start of every show. So we aired the first teaching in higher ed episode in June of 2014. And that intro hasn't changed. We talk about productivity in addition to teaching because we can have more peace in our lives and be more present for our students. And that peace to me is really important. I remember when I had Natalie Houston on the show, she wasn't necessarily that word peace didn't really resonate with her. She used the word ease. Just It can be easier. Like it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's just a way of working that is just over the long haul, far more sustainable. And I'm just going to say one more thing quick on this. I had Rebecca on the podcast previously to talk about her book, Agile Faculty, Practical Strategies for Managing Research, Service, and Teaching. And I learned a lot from her book, but I just saw on Twitter right before I came down to record that she just had her proposal accepted for a new book on faculty burnout. And she didn't, share a ton about it, but it sounds like she has experienced some burnout herself. And that that's part of, you know, what the book will be about sharing her experience as well as others. But, you know, we talk about it not being sustainable. I've been in higher education now for 15 years. And yeah, there's been really difficult times. But one of the ways I think I avoid burnout and still am passionate and joyful about the work that I am privileged to get to do is because I have that margin is because I'm not just constantly going, 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 going. Creating margin also means saying no, and I know that's a big thing for you. Tell us about saying no. How do you think about that? One of the big things that's been influential to me in this area is Greg McEwen's book called Essentialism. And that book is all about saying no to things so that you can say yes to some really important, the most essential work that you do. Now, he's a little bit too extreme for me. I think it's kind of unrealistic to think that I'd be able to navigate my life if I were following his prescription 100%. But he really does challenge me. Part of it is really a gendered thing for some of us, this idea that we're supposed to be good girls, we're little and we're supposed to be helpful. And part of being helpful is saying yes when you're asked to clear the table or whatever it is. And that what they often with boys call leadership with girls, they don't use that same word to describe those behaviors. So we're supposed to be helpful. So when we're asked to be on a committee, we're asked to provide some other sort of service around our racial identity or other kinds of identity like that we're supposed to say yes. And again, by the way, I'm not saying that men have always an easy time say no to things too. I just know for myself and my identity, I feel this pressure to 
to behave myself. <laughs> like I feel it. I, I, I can work past it, but I do have this thing where the, my first instinct is to go, oh, but I should. I should say yes. And then I have to start asking myself, well, why should you say yes? And if it doesn't tie back to something that's right there in the core sense of purpose and, and priorities for myself, I have learned how to say no better. And sometimes no means suggesting someone else. And the times when I've done that, Dave, I can't think of a time when I didn't say no and then suggest someone else that they didn't end up turning out better than I would have anyway, that provided some perspective I couldn't have, or it all just worked out better. So sometimes we tend to think of like, that first reaction is like, it must be me. No, it doesn't have to be me. And sometimes like someone's going to be way better. There's also this idea of that we're supposed to say yes to every wedding invitation that comes in. We're supposed to say yes to every birthday, every baby shower, like, you know, lots and lots of things around social obligations. And I tried to be really, I don't say yes to all of those things. In fact, (laughs) you're laughing. You you don't say yes to most of them. (laughs) Yeah. It's rare that we go to a wedding. I can't remember last time we went to a wedding. And it's not because we don't like weddings or don't like people (laughs) or celebrating, but it's just, there's only so many hours in life. And what is most important? And getting back to that essentialism concept of where do we want to spend time? And is it at a large celebration with hundreds of people? And maybe we'll see someone for a couple of minutes, or would we rather like go to dinner with someone and really just have that quality time together? Yeah, that's, uh, that's something both of us are pretty intentional about doing. I had a funny conversation with someone that is the mom of a boy who's in our son's class and a girl who's in our daughter's class. And we, it was after the, the little program that the kids did the other day. And we were talking about not that, that she adores me because I don't go to the kids' birthday parties. Like, I, and, the, and then it was funny because we were both talking about, yeah, that only works so if you're married to someone who's actually willing to go to them. So this whole formula that we're explaining here, the, the part we have left out until this moment is that Dave goes to the, I was going to say the vast majority, like, 99.7% of the birthday parties that our children attend. Are. I do. And I um, I have more joy about it than you do. Although occasionally I don't have joy also. Yes. <laughs> what about tools for productivity? This is where oftentimes people begin the conversation is what's the task list manager or how do you help people think about tools? Well, you mentioned task list. And if there were one thing to just say, start out with a task list, which also to me means a project list. So I use one called OmniFocus. OmniFocus is strictly on the Mac and iOS devices. So there are better tools for those of you on Windows. Todoist is another one, but just a tool where you can have projects and then underneath those, what are the steps it's going to take to accomplish those goals? Too many of us try to use our calendars for that kind of thing. Oh, there's a meeting to talk about such and such a project. So we'll just have the calendar guide that. And well, the, once the meeting's come and gone, you're not going to really be able to go back and remember what all those next steps are. So a calendar is not a great tool. And then as I mentioned previously, email is a terrible way of managing that too. So having a list, and it's, I, I report to the provost at my institution. And so he just, he's like, how do you do this? How do you, like, I'm a genius, Dave. <laughs> and I'm not a genius. I just, every time a new project comes up, that's going to fall either directly that I'm responsible for or someone who reports to me, I have a place for it. I've got a place where projects fall. And again, if it's somebody who reports to me, that's a different way that I set that up. But then always wanting to be moving those things forward. And then if I'm waiting on someone else, if there's a dependency on someone else or something else to happen, I capture those things too. But just having a list of all the projects, all the tasks in one place is an 
unbelievably powerful tool. Stop getting the email to try to do that for you. It won't. Stop trying to get the calendar to do that for you. It won't. Have something that was designed from the start to be able to manage projects and tasks. And that has just absolutely helped me on so many levels. Another big question that people have has to do with, well, I, I don't really like technology. So I, you know, I'd rather use pen and paper. And we tend to think about this too much in a binary way. And I will include myself when I say we. So I tend to be mostly digital. But recently, I purchased the Michael Hyatt's planner. We're going to talk about it a little bit later on. It's called the Full Focus Planner. But a big part of me I'm really finding is helpful is to identify what he calls your daily big three and then your weekly big three. So what are the three most important things that I'm going to get done? And if I have that, either if I've blocked out time on my calendar or if I have it somewhere on my task list, like there's nothing the same to me as having that planner sit open on the desk and it's on that page. And those three items are sitting right there. If I get interrupted, if I, if I just need to get centered, there's the pressure that I feel of checking off those three boxes and only three for that day. And so I would say that those of you that feel like you're not technical, like I just don't like to use the digital tools, at least try it for something like a calendar. Because our time today is, it changes too much and there's too many other people involved that just having an up-to-date calendar, it feels nearly impossible to me to do that on paper. Now, if what you like is to be able to see it, because there's that visual element to it, just like for me, writing down the big three, that certainly could be digital as well. But there's a wonderful year-long planner that fits on one poster size page that I'll link to in the show notes called the New Year new spelled N-E-U. But that one's great because it's, you know, really nice. The entire year fits there tightly on that one page and can help you see more visually what's going on. So I encourage those of us that lean more toward digital, think about what paper, paper tools, analog tools may help us. And those of you that are real strict about, I only use my planner, I only use a paper calendar, think you're missing out on some opportunities that the digital can help you with keeping your calendar and other things like that up to date. This is the time in the show when each of us get to give our recommendations, and I have two recommendations for us today, both directly related to this conversation. One tool that you and I have both used, Bonnie, over the years that has been a game changer for both of us on scheduling and using time is a tool called Acuity Scheduling. We have an affiliate with them, and they have been incredible on helping us to manage our calendars. And what it is, is it is a software service that connects up to our calendars. And we have it set up so that there are certain times in our calendars that we allow it to see and open up space. And I use it for all of my client conversations, business scheduling, um, the academy groups that I facilitate virtually. All of those are done through Acuity. And so when someone wants to set up a time with me, I can send them a link There's all kinds of different versions of links within the service that I can send them. I can send them a link for 20 minutes or an hour or however long that I'd like to set up a time. And then they can go onto my calendar and schedule time whenever they want to. And then it automatically sends them reminders. It can even send them text messages to remind them of the session, the meeting if they want. It integrates with Zoom so it can set up the video piece uh, for those of us who use those conference tools. 
And it also sets up the group sessions that I do and helps to do all the reminders and automates all of that. So it's been very powerful for both of us. And Bonnie, you use it for office hours, don't you? Yes, I use it for office hours. We also use it for registrations for our events in the Institute for Faculty Development. I also use it for my podcast. Another thing that we have really worked out well in there, Dave, is that if I were to schedule a podcast interview, it obviously puts that in my calendar. It actually puts that in my work calendar and my teaching in higher ed calendar, but it also puts it as the resource called the studio so that someone trying to book a podcast interview with you yeah. can't book it at the same time as mine. We only have one podcast studio here at home. I know that's shocking. <laughs> Which so, is but, one more than anyone else in the world has. Yes, yes. But but that has helped save us because otherwise trying to coordinate, are you doing stuff? And we used to have to really limit our time a lot more than we do now. Already our schedules are busy enough to limit them as they are. So now just having that freedom where let the system take care of it. It's really amazing. It's an amazing tool. They have great help desk too. If you need to really kind of trick something out and you need some help. It's a good solution for, and I think about like the, some of the resources you're building at your institution right now, like if you have a limited resource and there's only one room or one availability for students to book that and automatically not make that time available to others. So you don't end up with double bookings and all that. It is the number of hours that save both of us is really incredible. So that's a great tool if you're looking for something like that to help automate some things. So you can spend more time talking to people and doing the things that you don't want to automate versus spending time going back and forth on times and schedules and all that. The second of two recommendations I have is to purchase the book, The Productive Online and Offline Professor. We've been talking about that in context of this conversation. Bonnie has spent the last, gosh, last year or two really detailing out not only the resources, but the philosophy behind how can you as a instructor, as a teacher, as a faculty member, really be able to use your skill set more effectively and efficiently through productivity and to focus on the things that are most important. And so uh, whether it's available now when we air this or if you are inclined to pre-order it, I'm really excited to see your work get out in the world even more so and for folks to learn from it and to uh, take the next step from what they learned in the book. And congratulations on, uh, on this book. Thanks, Dave. In case it's not obvious, I didn't know he was going to do that. And I was sort of chuckling, Dave, because Lee Scalarip Bissett, who I mentioned earlier, she on Twitter, either yesterday or today, she was so funny because she's like, all right, listen up. We are all this year going to get out there and promote our stuff. You tell me what you're doing. Also, it was just like, really, uh, she was trying to break down this barrier that we have around self-promotion. Like we don't share what we're what we're doing and really spread it very well. It's not always necessarily a comfortable thing for us to do. So I was going to recommend my book, but you did it for me. So that's great. <laughs> but yeah, well, good. I still, I still think it's a great, I think it's a good resource. I really enjoyed that Robert Talbert wrote the foreword and I started weeping when I read it because it really represented so much of what I wanted to do with this book. The, the subject of productivity can sometimes be tough because people see it as so like, oh, you're just going to hack your way th through the problems of being an adjunct, you know, that, that I don't want to say that we don't still have systemic issues of our workforce and how we staff our, our courses and our various institutions. I mean, the, those problems are still there. There's still the problem of women, and then it gets even worse with women of color and how much we're expected to provide additional service that men statistically won't be asked to perform. So, I mean, those systemic things don't go away because you have a great task list. <laughs> so, I, I really wanted to create a book that didn't center on those things because that's not what the book is about, but that, you know, I do talk a little bit about, I have an aunt who 
who has um, dementia. And so talking a little bit about that in relation to my weekly review, because that felt very chaotic. Speaking of chaos in, in our lives, um, it's been chaotic for you too at times, I know, Dave. So anyway, thank you for recommending it. I'll, I'll echo in that. I hope you do take the opportunity, those of you listening to order it or pre-order or whatever's going on when you happen to listen to this episode. My second recommendation is to order the full focus planner. And I talked about that earlier. So this is from Michael Hyatt. Michael Hyatt used to be in the publishing business and now has a really well-known leadership blogger and podcaster and author and uh, has been just a, a wonderful resource to me on a number of fronts. And the planner... <laughs> It is It is not the cheapest planner that you're going to find. And the reason for that is it's actually like if you were to subscribe for a year, it's actually four planners. So it's, the you know, like a size of a regular planner, but they have daily pages in there instead of just like a week. And for me, I need a daily page. And then they have some blank pages in the back and they have some different things that integrate with their planning systems. Something as silly, Dave, as it has two bookmarks, little, little ribbon bookmarks. I love that it has two bookmarks. It also will lay flat on your desk when you open it. I was mentioning just having those three big wins sitting out there on my desk. That planner sits out there. Unless I go to a meeting, it's sitting on my desk. It's saying, hey, have you done that one yet? <laughs> have you done that one yet? So it's just really well thought out. It's also very flexible that they do recognize many people use a paper planner with a digital set of tools as well. So it's really flexible that way. It comes with a whole bunch of videos with the, them sharing their expertise on how to get the most out of it. So again, it's not a cheap planner. You're going to spend some money, but my gosh, I don't regret it for a moment. It's been really essential from the moment I got it. And I just got my second one. So this is my second quarter using it. And I, I cannot tell you how excited I am to fill in those dates and get started on the one that'll start in January, which will, I will have already started it by the time you're listening. So I'd suggest, and, and as a side note, it is an affiliate relationship that we have with them. I actually bought the planner before the affiliate relationship was there for the planner, but we do make a, a little bit if um, you do make a purchase. So just want you to be aware of that. We're not going to make millions though. That's not, that's not what's going to have me retiring early, I can assure you. If that happened, that would be a much higher number of yes. uh, people using <laughs> analog planners than I think we had anticipated were listening yes. to the show. And, yeah. and Yes, and more people listening to the show in general. <laughs> that that also has a it larger would, point. It would be the number one podcast. <laughs> Pretty much. In the world. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Bonnie. Thank you so much for your perspective on productivity and helping all of us, including me over the years to get better at this. I'm grateful for it. Thanks, Dave. So if you have not yet hopped on to the teachingandhighered.com website, all of the links will be up there, of course, that we've mentioned today. In addition, if you go over to teachingandhighered.com slash subscribe, that will give you access to get the uh, weekly message from Bonnie. She often writes an article each week and also sends out the notes from every episode, so you don't have to go track it down uh, each week online. It'll just show up right in your inbox with all the resources she's recommended and all of the expert links. And we'll see you back next week for the next conversation. Thanks so much, Bonnie. Thanks, Dave. See everyone next time. Take care.